Hey everyone, and welcome back to Inside the Morgue. We're your hosts and favorite autopsy techs, Jess and Alice. This week, we're revisiting another fan favorite, Bones. We haven't actually done a Bones episode in a while, so this is exciting. I know, I think we've only done one other Bones episode. So this week, we're dissecting Season 2, Episode 12, titled The Man in the Cell. Let's get into it. We start with Bones and Booth getting called out to a fire scene at a prison. As they are walking to the cell with the burnt body, the warden explains that the cell doors opened automatically when there's a fire, so the guards had to act fast to contain the prisoners while the firefighters were working. This cell had belonged to someone named Howard Epps, who was a known serial killer. Bones looks at the body and says that it's a male victim, approximately 30 years of age, which matches Epps' general size and build. Also, she's not, like, measuring anything. No, she's, she eyeballed everything. She's eyeballing it. She's, like, superhuman. <laughs> With this, like, <laughs> super burnt body. She just knows femur measurements off the top of her head. Like, femur length. <laughs> As a forensic anthropologist, I would hope that she would know that stuff. Yeah. And it was, like, there was a ton of burnt ash. and just She didn't even clean it up. She's looking at it. She's just like, all right, around 30 years old, this tall. And I'm like, damn, girl. Looks like his build. It has to be him. It has to be him. <laughs> So this matches the general size and description of Epps. But this body is totally unrecognizable and almost burnt to a crisp. Bones says the contortion of the body indicates a painful death. Kind of, quote, fun fact with working in a morgue. Uh, burned bodies do go into a certain pose. It's called pugilistic pose, which is when like your their elbows and their knees come inward and your hands clench. So it's almost sometimes called like a boxer's pose. This is caused by muscle and tissue shrinkage due to the heat from the fire. That could be what she's indicating, is that there was a pugilistic pose with this body. So back in the show, Epps was in prison for killing four teenage girls that the police know about. It seems as if someone threw accelerant on him and then lit him on fire. Apparently, Bones and Booth had an earlier run-in with Epps, and Bones had broken his wrist. This body does have a broken wrist, but this break looks fresh not matching the healing timeline of when Bones would have broken Epps's wrist. So your bones can break in a fire, but there's no signs of a prior break. This man's wrist was slammed against a hard edge within the last few hours. Therefore, this body is not Howard Epps. Dun dun dun. All the guards are accounted for as well, but Bones sees a tattoo on the body that survived the fire. So again, another quote fun fact. Tattoos can be really important in identifying victims of fire deaths or even severely decomposing bodies. And we have had several cases where we've had to get a positive ID on a body that was either burnt beyond recognition or decomposing to the point where they were unrecognizable based off of tattoos that we were able to see at autopsy. We actually did have a fire case where only one part of this person's body was not burnt and they had a tattoo and we were able to identify them through that one tattoo because they were facially unrecognizable yeah that was crazy that was a pretty cool case yeah and it was it's interesting to see them do this in the show and she even does proper well i will tell jess to talk about this the proper lighting technique to get a good photo so bones lights a black light over the tattoo to be able to see it better and we've done like alternate light situations yeah we tried to do that for another case i think this the case that we did it for was a really decomped body and they had a tattoo like somewhere on their chest and we turned all the lights off and we had we had like these led lights and we turned them to the blue light setting on it and we're shining it over the tattoo and taking pictures because like when you get tattoo cover-ups and you shine like certain colored light over it 
it can show the tattoo underneath of what was covered up. So that's what we were trying to do. So that is what Bones is doing here. And she sees a tattoo that says DC Fire Department. So they used an alternate light source on the tattoo given the state of the body. Certain tattoos remain visible and identifiable given extensive soft tissue decomposition. So this body seems to belong to a firefighter. So this firefighter came in to save Epps, but Epps killed him, took his uniform, set him on fire, and escaped right out the front door. There was already a fire, so this firefighter came in, and then Epps lit another fire. He lit the fire while the fire was going on to cover up his fire. So many fires. Because at first, I wasn't really thinking clearly, and I was like, oh, this burnt body was the fire. And I was like, no, because he's the firefighter, so there would have had to be a fire for him to fight. (laughs) He had to come in for the fire. Had to be lit on fire. Well, he didn't have to be lit on fire. This man (laughs) lit him on fire. So they take the body back to the morgue to do an autopsy and to identify him. The accelerator was distilled alcohol, and the fractures are consistent with Bones' theory. The victim's wrist was broken to match Epps' injury. A blow to the head rendered him unconscious, and then he was set on fire. The one tech points out what she thinks is a broken spine as a result of the blow to the head. They ID'd the burned victim as Donald Kent. They determined that he was still alive when he was set on fire. So there are a few ways that you can tell if someone was alive during a fire or if they died prior to the fire being set at autopsy. So the most obvious things that we look for are soot in the trachea, like your airway, when we take that out, or just generally in your lungs. Yeah, there would be soot in the the bronchi. That means you were breathing in the fumes. If somebody was dead before the fire was set, they wouldn't be breathing, so you wouldn't see that. This now makes seven victims that the police know of. I thought I said four before. They said seven. Who, where are these other bodies coming from? Yeah, so maybe it's four teenage girls and he killed other people? He killed this guy and then where are the other two bodies that they know of that aren't telling us about? Two people. They didn't tell us in this exact episode, so we don't know about it. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so apparently there's seven victims now that the police know of. And it appears that the victims aren't just young blonde women anymore, which seemed to be his quote type before. Bones then gets a phone call, and it's from Epps. He tells Bones that everything... I'm sorry, I just said Epps so dramatically, and it's like such not a... It's like not a dramatic name. I was like, Epps. <laughs> like, I'm trying to make it sound like he's such a bad... Trying to make it so dramatic for our audience. It's so not intimidating, at least to me. Like, it's Epps. <laughs> also, he did not look intimidating at all. He looked like very basic white male. I mean, that is... The kind of person that's usually a serial killer, (laughs) statistically. Statistically, yes. That we've seen, in America at least. Sorry for the rant about that. I just started laughing at myself, trying to be dramatic for everyone. So Epps tells Bones that everything from here on out is her fault. So they have a history from the beginning of this season that we obviously missed, but she apparently made him feel inferior and figured him out because she's super duper smart and he wants revenge on her for putting him in prison. She asks what's going to happen and he says he can't answer all her questions and that she needs to use her head. Then he hangs up. He called from a payphone and the police drove immediately to that spot to try to track him. At the payphone, he left something in a bag for them to find. It's a small glass vial containing bone shaved down by rough sandpaper. They look at the bone microscopically and found that the osteon count places the victim's age as mid-30s. So the osteon is a functional unit of bone, and they're basically cylindrical structures composed of concentric layers of bone tissue, and they surround like the central canal of your bone. 
They're going to run an amylogenin and nuclear DNA test to get the sex and the race. So amylogenin are a set of proteins that can be used to determine sex due to differences on the X and Y chromosomes. And nuclear DNA, or nuclear deoxyribonucleic acid, is the DNA contained within each nucleus of a eukaryotic organism. The chemical breakdown of the bone shows that it's a mixture of cardamom, tamarind, and cocum. These are spices, but why would he add spices to the bone dust? The spices are possibly a message meant for the team. They hear one of the teammates scream from the other room, and Bones and everyone else runs to see what's happening. They find a box on the table containing a human heart. And I know this is a horrible thing to just receive in the mail, no warning, but we gotta give a green flag for how good this heart looks. It's a pretty accurate heart, I would say. It looked pretty cool. Yeah. It had all the valves, and it was the correct shape, and it looked kind of realistic, so we'll give a green flag. But in the box, there is also a note. It's a newspaper article that had just been printed about the lab. Every line is blacked out except for one line that reads, Dr. Hodgins called Angela, the heart of the operation. And Angela is the one who opened the package. So they examine the heart and take DNA to determine sex. There are cut marks on both sides of the inferior vena cava and connecting arteries. So the inferior vena cava is ultimately responsible for the transport of almost all venous blood, which is the deoxygenated blood, from the abdomen and lower extremities back to the right side of the heart for oxygenation. The heart was cut out using shears or scissors, and the package was delivered by a bike messenger who said a man matching Epps's appearance approached him and paid him cash. They then figure out that the spices that were in the bone dust are actually ingredients for curry, which is an Indian food, and Epps is possibly targeting his ex-wife, and she lives in Little India over a curry restaurant. Can I say, this is like this at least the second time that food has been a clue, like a secret clue in one of our, there was one time where they thought there was some kind of fungus, I think it was an episode of Body of Proof. They were like, oh, there's fungus on the foot. Let's swab it. And then one guy sniffed it and he's like, that's not fungus. That's tzatziki sauce yeah. from the Greek restaurant down the road. That was our episode. Would you would you smell a microscope yeah, slide? A microscope slide. Because he just, no fear, just puts that up to his face and sniffs it. This is the <laughs> second time that a killer has used food. I mean, working in the field, we're not afraid to make food references because it's just, it's so easy to make that, like, association between the two. Yeah. I still would never sniff something. Never. Like that. (laughs) (laughs) So they rush over to the ex-wife's place, and this place hasn't been rented out since she moved out last year. The electricity is off, and only the refrigerator is working, which is kind of odd. And inside the fridge is a severed head belonging to the ex-wife. The head is brought back to the morgue to examine. The head was severed just above the shoulders. The jagged marks on the bone indicate that Epps used some type of saw to decapitate her. There are no signs of blunt force trauma to the head, which is his usual ML, and they have no clear cause of death yet. Without the rest of her body, they can't know for sure how she died. There is some kind of white powder in her hair. Epps had only left her head, so the whole team would end up being involved in his little puzzled game yeah because i don't know just the shock value of that everyone's gonna want to know what's going on right so the less they have to work with the more they're all drawn in epps had told bones to use her head when they were on the phone and everything he says is a clue he loves it's not quite a pun i guess is it he's like she's the heart of the operation sends her a heart pretty on the (laughs) head there like hitting like the nail on the head (laughs) (laughs) on the head (laughs) 
<laughs> it was corny. <laughs> I love it. Title of the episode. <laughs> Hit the nail on the head. So he said to use her head. So could there be something in this woman's head? Booth wants them to open the head right now, but the doc says it's too early. She says there are protocols in place and they can't just break them. The doc wants to do this autopsy by the book, which means an external exam has to be done, followed by x-rays, and then she will open the skull. Where the head is placed on the table, there's a camera above so that the whole room can see like what's happening when it's being examined on the cut side of the neck. That was pretty cool. That was pretty cool, and I give that a green flag. Their observation room... So that's like a really common thing in autopsies to have a separate observation room that has the overhead light. It has a camera which projects it to like a separate TV somewhere, either like on the other side of the room or in that room made for teaching purposes. And the tech notices massive blood aspiration to the soft tissue of the neck. And aspiration happens when food, liquid, or other material enters a person's airway and eventually the lungs by accident. So the ex-wife was alive when Epps cut her head off. She was beheaded, not decapitated. And for anyone that doesn't know, the difference between the two is whether or not the victim is alive when their head is cut off. So if they're alive when the head is cut off, it's beheading. And if they're already dead, that's decapitation. I remember being fascinated when I learned that for the first time. I was, I just always thought they were synonymous. And then I remember we learned in class. I always think. Are you going to quote The Office? <laughs> no, no, what are you talking about? <laughs> in The Office, Ed Truck, the like old manager, he like dies in a tragic accident and his head that he like loses his head in a car accident and Michael is like his kappa was detated <laughs> I thought that's what you were gonna say no, but technically it wasn't a decapitation what were you gonna say I was thinking of the guillotine oh okay so you were thinking of a normal Henry the eighth his ex his wives were beheaded I just watched too much tv <laughs> So anyway, so since this was a beheading, she was alive, and it now appears that he's torturing his victims. Booth wants to torture Epps by bringing in Epps's mother. The FBI profiler on her case believes that Epps was, was emotionally attached to her. His prison logs show that he wrote to her almost every day. If he feels responsible for his mother being in jail, that can throw him right off his game. So Booth and Bones go to visit her in jail. And she doesn't know that her son escaped from jail and says that she tried to keep him pure, like the good book says. Epps wants his mother to forgive him, and that's why he wrote to her every day. Bones basically blames the mother for how Epps acts now. She made Howard bathe in ammonia when he was a boy. That's awful. I hate when they said that. I actually cringed. And the women that Howard would go out with were not the Christian type. So she wanted to wash their scent off of him. Bones and Booth go to leave and the mother's mumbling to herself that she should have beaten Howard more regularly and that she was too nice to him. On their drive back, they're talking about Epps and how he's an animal with no conscience. There are crimes of passion, crimes committed out of desperation, which are usually followed by remorse or acknowledgement of human failing. Keyword there is human. Bone says the reasons for killing someone are unimportant. The life that's taken is all that matters. Booth gets a call from the lab and they found something that was inserted into the ex-wife's ear. Epps made an incision in the ear canal and inserted a token ride from a local park. How big is this token? It looked like maybe a quarter size. What kind of incision in the ear canal is he? Like, I'm trying... Now I'm thinking of, like, a magician that finds a quarter in your ear. That's inappropriate. <laughs> but I'm, like, trying to figure out how, how did he cut the ear canal to fit, a, like, a quarter in there? Yeah, like, it wasn't clear if it was behind the ear 
in if he cut like inside the ear it said ear canal so i'm thinking like in there inside yeah like how do you stick a quarter in there i'm gonna look at my (laughs) i have a forensic little skeleton on my desk and i see the skull so i'm gonna like analyze this later on it's trying to stick a quarter in its ears Like it's a piggy bank. Like hmm. <laughs> that's probably what he was thinking. Oh God! <laughs> oh, no. So the park that this token belongs to, Booth's son plays at that park, and he plays there every day after school. So they rush to the merry-go-round, and they find his son, and he is unharmed. The son says a man bought him ice cream, and that the man said he was Booth's friend. The man told the son to use his napkin. Bones picks up the napkin, and the napkin has a note on it. It reads, "My name is Parker." Ask me how I can solve this case. And his son is Parker. So they're thinking like, Parker, what else did he say? And the son's like traumatized because his dad's yelling at him. They're like shaking this poor kid. They're like, Parker, what do you know? And he's just like five. <laughs> so back in the lab, they have the severed head on the table in a glass dish to keep it from moving as they do the external exam. Booth calls and wants them to open up the skull instead of taking x-rays first. They listen to Booth since Epps just went after his son and they then get the bone saw out. The doctor found some bruising on the back of the neck, and she's going to cut below it as to not disturb the area. Red flag here. So while this doctor has safety goggles on to protect her eyes, she's not wearing a mask, and like when we use the bone saw, a lot of times there's like back spatter that comes back as you're like cutting into the brain, and if there's like fluid or edema in there, and blood. So like she should at least be wearing a mask to cover her mouth. Yeah. And that, and even like the bone dust that gets kicked in the air, like you don't want to breathe that. Yeah, didn't like this at all. Yeah, like you're you're pretty close there, your face to the bone saw when you're cutting the skull. So if only she had proper PPE. She's also not wearing a gown, just her lab coat. Well, we have to know she's a scientist. <laughs> she has to wear her lab coat. She has to make that point in every scene. We're adding another red flag right away because this scene I still can't get over. I actually, I'll get into this in a minute. I had a nightmare about this scene because it bothered me so much. The camera cuts to her just using the bone saw to saw straight into this woman's forehead with the head facing up. And which is like, that's part one of this red flag. And part two of this red flag is that she doesn't even peel the scalp back. So, like, the bone saw won't cut through soft tissue like that, and it would be extremely difficult to open the skull with, like, a scalp still on it. Yeah, she just, like, goes right into the forehead. It bothered me so much to the point I told Jess this today. I watched this episode yesterday because I was very last minute preparing for this. (laughs) I had a nightmare last night that we were at work, and everybody was like, okay, Alice, you can take out the brain. And I just went and I without thinking to put the bone saw into the person's forehead and Jess was like Alice what are you doing and I was like oh my god I forgot how to do my job and I was I love that you dream of me you're yelling at me for fucking up you're screwing up I don't know if we're cursing on our podcast you're yelling at me oh my god Alice when they showed that I literally had to pause it I stared at my computer for like a good minute and I was like what this this woman is a doctor and they say that she they're following policy and procedure sorry what procedure is this that you cut into the forehead and you're a doctor so you obviously went to med school and you've done an autopsy rotation that whole part baffled me 
And I, I remember you warned me about it because you watched it before I did. And I, I, we picked this episode because I read a quick summary and I saw it involved something with an autopsy. So I was like, oh, cool. We do that. We can talk about it. And I said that to you and you watched it already. And you're like, oh, the autopsy scene is insane. You will not believe what they do with a bone saw. It's hilarious. <laughs> so normally when you're at this point in the autopsy where the brain is ready to be examined, we stand at the top of the table slash like where the head is and we'll peel back the scalp so we'll do two we'll do an incision behind the ear on one side and bring it around the back of the head to behind the other ear and then we kind of flip it up just kind of peel it's exactly what it sounds like we peel the scalp up i accidentally brought up peeling scalps at easter dinner with my family and my brother and my dad were like all right that's great we're gonna leave now that happened the other night me and dom me and dom were eating somewhere or like we were at his house eating and I started talking about autopsies, and he goes, okay, I think I'm done now. Well, it was because someone had mentioned that my forearms look good, and that I have strong forearms. And I was like, yeah, it's from peeling scalps. And I said it just so... So casually. Casually, that it was quiet for a minute. <laughs> my brother literally left the room. He's like, all right, this was cool. And like, walked away. I just like, I always forget that that's not normal dinner conversation to other people. But it is for us. It's the truth. I got really good forearms from doing this. It takes a lot of strength. But yeah, so after we do our incision on the back of the head, which we do on the back of the head so that if they are going to be viewed at a wake, you won't see the incision. We flip it up and then we actually cut back the temporalis muscles, which is the muscle on the side of your head where your temples are. And it's one of your major muscles of mastication. So chewing. So it goes from the temple down to your jaw. And after we do that, we take autopsy photos and then we get the bone saw out and we cut bone with the bone saw. Not just cutting into soft tissue. Nothing else. Hence the name. So this doctor didn't even bother to move the woman's hair out of the way. (laughs) Yeah, the woman, the ex-wife, her hair was perfectly side parted. She had like a full face of makeup on still. The only thing she did right was she stabilized the head as she cut. Because if you have to open up a severed head, uh, it's actually more difficult than you think because there's no, the head's just moving around. Usually there's a neck there to hold it in place. So yeah, she stabilized the head. Which we've had to do before. We had an insane case and there was a severed head involved and we had to open it up, which was very difficult. First time I've ever had to do that. Yeah. So as soon as the doc starts cutting into the forehead, this puff of white powder explodes into the doctor's face. Maybe this wouldn't have happened if she did a proper head dissection or if she had any kind of PPE on other than goggles. So they lock down the room and treat it as a biological containment. The doctor chokes and falls to the floor and a seizure begins. She's taken to the hospital and her heart rate is erratic and there's clotting in her kidneys. There is also significant lung damage. So this toxin caused edema, which is fluid buildup in the lungs, and the doctors don't think she has much time left. The powder left traces on her clothing, so they're going to try to test that. And there was also a tech in the room when she was bone sawing straight into the head, and he somehow wasn't affected. So they don't think it's a gas, but they can't find any traces of the powder on her clothing. But there could be particles left in the glass parts in the severed head. So it was like this powder was contained in like a little glass ball in the like frontal bone of the skull. They finally take the x-ray of the head and they see the shards of glass on the frontal bone of the skull and that's what contained the poison. It's only a severed head. 
an x-ray really wouldn't have taken that long to do you know you're so right i didn't even think about that they're being so dramatic about like wait we don't have time he was like open the head why do you want to do an x-ray first just open the head it really it would have taken a minute to do an x-ray on that (laughs) just so quick you're so right everybody was so dramatic about following procedure and then she just bone saw straight into this person's forehead Epps inserted this after she was dead, probably up the nose. So I was trying to picture where, like, is it in the sinus? It wouldn't be in the frontal sinus, I don't think. And either, even if it was, that's not where she even cut on the forehead. She, I don't know. Or was it, like, in the brain? She cut, like, right above, I think it was her left eyebrow. Mm-hmm. I have no idea. I was, like, thinking if it's under the skin, like, wouldn't you feel, like, a bump? It's, like, something hard? You'd see a bump. Maybe there was a bump and they thought it was just, like, oh, but even if she thought it was, like, a wound, she would have cut around it because she was cutting around the other wound that she found on the head. I don't know. It doesn't make sense. None of it makes sense. I'm trying to make it make sense and it doesn't make sense. Bones says if she was Epps, she would have made the poison something that changes composition after prolonged exposure to air. Epps then calls Bones on the phone, and he says he has a hint to save the doctor's life. The body knows what the head can't say. Bones is confused by what body he means, and he's like, oh, do you mean your ex-wife's body or your mother's? And Epps is clearly triggered by the bringing up of his mother, and he hangs up. Back at the lab, the techs are working on trying to get a sample of whatever the powder is. There's about a one-ten-thousandth of a gram, which isn't enough to test. And the particles themselves are also extremely small, about 1.6 micrometers in diameter. What they do know is it's none of the common poisons like arsenic, cyanide, or mercuric chloride. The white powder that was on her hair that they originally saw was plaster dust. And there was a small amount of sodium hydrosulfite in her ear. With those two things, they think of drywalling and leather goods. Because, you know, who doesn't think... Of leather goods. That's what any any normal person would think of. When they hear sodium hydrosulfite. That's not what you think of? First thing I think of is leather goods. Maybe I'm just not as smart as these people. They like got to that conclusion so quickly. They're like, ah, of course, leather goods. So what they need to do is find the rest of his ex-wife's body. Going back to the napkin that read, my name is Parker. Booth thought that Epps was talking about his son, but there are a bunch of other things named Parker in the area. One of the techs finds a Parker and Parker leather goods shop that they found in a search. And it's owned by Parker Brothers, and it's on Parker Street in the town of Parker. What are the odds? I think that's amazing advertising for this shop. They have one thing, and they do it so well. They do it so well. <laughs> the one thing they have is being named Parker. So they get the SWAT team to that shop, and when they go inside, there's the rest of the body on the table waiting for them. On her abdomen is a bag of white powder likely the same poison that the doctor got exposed to. One of the investigators goes to grab the bag and finds out that there was a pressure trigger in the woman's abdomen. The body is booby-trapped. Booth puts his hand over the other guy's hand on the abdomen, and they jump back together, taking their hand off the trigger, and the bomb goes off. Both Booth and the investigator are fine, but they give a false story to the press, saying that Booth was in critical condition and that the other man died, hoping that Epps buys it. They're testing the powder from the bag, and it's not a bacterial protein or a non-opioid analgesic. It's not a neurotoxin or a heavy metal either. It acts like a chloromethane, but it doesn't have a sweet smell. The sample that they have comes back as methyl bromide mixed with plaster dust. So methyl bromide is highly toxic, and studies in humans indicate that the lung may be severely injured by acute or short-term inhalation. Acute and chronic or long-term inhalation of methyl bromide can lead to neurological effects in humans. Methyl bromide is produced naturally and synthetically. The major sources in the environment are oceans, biomass burnings, and fumigation use. 
The treatment for this poison is racemic epinephrine. Epinephrine causes vasoconstriction and decreases blood flow, which should diminish edema formation. So Bones goes back to her apartment and Epps is there waiting for her in her walls. He comes out with a crowbar as she's trying to shower. She then comes around the corner, pointing a gun at him, and Booth is on the other side of the room, ready to take him in. The plaster death from the poison came from the renovation of the apartment next door to Bones. Epps throws the crowbar at Booth and then jumps off the balcony. Booth rushes to catch him, but Epps slips out of his hand and falls to the ground to his death. A well-deserved death. He killed seven, apparently seven people. Yeah. Although Booth was trying to have his Batman moment and save him. He's like, I'm not like you. I won't let you die. And it's like Batman's whole thing. This was a crazy episode. There was a lot going on with the horrible autopsy scene. (laughs) But the one thing that caught her eye in this episode was the dramaticness of them trying to figure out what poison the doc was poisoned with. And this got us curious about methyl bromide and its effects on humans, which led us to finding this true event of methyl bromide poisoning. In March of 2015, two teens and their parents were on vacation in the Virgin Islands. The whole family felt gravely ill on their vacation, all of them suffering from seizures. The recovery from nerve damage was agonizing on the whole family. The two teens had been put into medically induced comas for weeks, and after waking, struggled to eat, walk, and sit up on their own. Prior to the incident, the two boys had been athletes in school, and the older of the two was already touring colleges as a prospect for lacrosse teams. Their father, Steve Esmond, was still experiencing severe tremors and was struggling to speak and couldn't turn the pages of a book. Six months after the incident, he still couldn't do that. Their mother, Teresa Devine, experienced less severe symptoms because she had less exposure to what was found out to be methyl bromide. Two employees of the local Terminex had fumigated the villa they were staying at below the families with methyl bromide, even though methyl bromide is not approved for residential use. After the family was found ill, the EPA, or the Environmental Protection Agency, investigated the scene and found trace amounts of methyl bromide in the family's villa. The exposure was so significant that six weeks after the family fell ill, the EPA still found lethal amounts of gas in the villa. Six others on the island also had mild symptoms of methyl bromide exposure, including headache, fatigue, cough, and shortness of breath. Four of the six people were emergency workers who came in to save the Esmond family. The pesticide manufacturer told CNN that an odor was supposed to be added to the methyl bromide so that it could be detected, but the Esmond family's attorney said that no odor was present. Methyl bromide is highly restricted as a pesticide because of how toxic it is and also because of how bad it is for the environment. It's only legal for agricultural use. Workers who use methyl bromide are supposed to have special training and are supposed to file paperwork with the EPA every time that methyl bromide is purchased, detailing their plans for their use of the pesticide. Since the incident with the Esmonds, the EPA and Terminix had done national inventories searching for improper use of methyl bromide. The EPA also had meetings with every region in the nation about the case of the Esmonds and sent out safety alerts to all states and territories asking for increased vigilance of distribution and use of methyl bromide to ensure the product is not applied in residential settings. The Terminex company had also taken steps to ensure that this doesn't happen again, including halting fumigation in the U.S. Virgin Islands, reinforcing policies with employees and speaking to technicians about the specific products they use and how they're applied. We got all this information from a CNN.com article titled, New Details on Family Poisoned by Pesticide, Sons Can't Eat or Walk Alone, by Sarah Gainham, which we will include in our show notes below. That 
is crazy. That poor family. I want to know who thought it was a good idea to just use it as a residential pesticide, even though like illegal to use in residence, like residential areas for a reason. I wonder if it was cheaper to buy that and use it than to buy something more expensive that they had to file paperwork for. Yeah. And they were just cutting corners, but I don't I'm just speculating. I know, me too. This is all alleged, but yeah, that's where it this reminded me of when we talked about meth houses. Yes. And how detrimental the effects of like a meth house is after there's been a meth lab in there even like years after the fact. And this was like what was it 6 weeks this later? This was 2015. This was 2015 and 6 weeks after the fact, the EPA went back and there were still levels Mm -hmm. of methyl bromide there that were dangerous and that's crazy and horrifying it's crazy that a story like this even exists like methyl bromide poisoning in the show methyl bromide poisoning happens in real life yeah where did epps get the methyl bromide did he file special paperwork to receive it imagine if he did and that's how he got caught wait so (laughs) he used his full name and social (laughs) he's just like yep it's me howard epps we talked about this today at work more families in the villa were affected by the poisoning but the other tech that was in the autopsy suite when the doctor cut into the head he was unaffected oh he would have been affected yeah i think so they try to excuse that in the show with like powder versus gas and i think in this situation it was a gas form they were spraying but still i still think he was too close to that situation he would have had some kind of effect Mm -hmm. but what do i know i peel scalps before i use a bone saw apparently that's not how things are done in the bones world i follow the right procedures i just she was all about following protocol and procedure and then the minute booth was like you need to cut into the head now she just doesn't even take the time to peel the scalp she's like all right she took his instructions so literally he's like open the head now and she's like fine I'm going to skip a bunch of steps. Fine. You want it now? I'll give it to you now. Maybe that's what she was doing. Maybe she was being petty. She's like, fine. I'll cut all the corners <laughs> and the forehead. I don't know why that haunted me so much to the point where I had a dream about it. <laughs> it really bothered me. I think that's my favorite part of this entire episode, that you had a legit nightmare about this episode. I woke up freaking out. Like, I, oh my God. It was just like a work dream where you like mess something up at work. And everybody's mad at you. And I had one of those dreams that I that I was like her and I just cut right into the person's face with a bone saw. So to end this episode, we tallied a total of two green flags and two red flags. So in our opinion, this episode of Bones is a tie in terms of forensic accuracy. But in terms of bone saw use, it fails entirely. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Morgue. If you enjoy our podcast and want to learn more about forensics, keep on listening. You can find us on Instagram at Inside the Morgue Pod and DM us with anything you want to talk about. We'll be back next week for a brand new dissection. Bye! Bye.